and welcome to Relevant History. I'm Dan Toller. Last episode, we left off in the year 833 at the end of an Abbasid civil war. The new caliph, al-Mamun, was one of the sons of Harun al-Rashid, the great, uh, iconic caliph who we talked about previously. After winning the war against his brother in the year 819, various other local rebellions had occupied most of al-Mamun's time. Uh, Syria, for instance, had a military governor that refused to submit, and it took until the year 825 for al-Mamun to put that rebellion down. And there was also a rebellion by non-Muslims in Azerbaijan. Uh, these folks were not happy with the way they were being treated under the caliphate and were taking advantage of the unrest to try and break away. And that rebellion would continue through the rest of al-Mamun's caliphate. Now, he did take a few measures to stabilize this teetering empire. Uh, for one thing, he replaces most of the governors. Right? He ensures that the people who have the power on the ground in the provinces are loyal to him. And one other thing he does is he makes sure that there's a plan for his succession. Right. When he dies on campaign in 833, his younger brother, another son of Harun al-Rashid, becomes the new caliph. Now, this new caliph is a man named al-Mutasim, and al-Mutasim is a powerful military leader. We talked last episode about how Abbasid manpower was becoming depleted during this time period. Right, No longer could the armies rely on a steady supply of Arabs and non-Arab Muslims to fill out the ranks. Right? They were starting to have to rely on mercenaries, and al-Mutasim led a whole bunch of mercenaries. He also led a large number of a type of soldier that you do not see these days. At least, we don't talk about them. And that's a slave soldier. Now, that term may sound a bit off to a modern person, right? After all, when we think of slavery, we think of somebody who is being forced to do something. Well, if the slaves are the army, how do you force those guys to do anything, right? You would need the army to force them. Well, the answer is that these slave soldiers are incentivized by social carrots and sticks. Uh, here's one example. Uh, a soldier slave was unable to pass on an inheritance, but upon completing his term in service, received freedom, uh, 
as well as a land grant, right? Somewhere to settle down and retire. So if you were someone who sort of lived on the fringes of the empire, sorry, the caliphate, being quote-unquote forced into service as a slave soldier might actually not be all that bad. And because of the way this type of slavery works, it's not always clear how many of these troops are mercenaries, how many of them are slaves, and where the line is between the two. For example, one of al-Mutasim's generals is a man named al-Afshin. Now, in the Chronicles, he's described as a slave, but his name is a royal title in Transoxiana, in the place where he's from, and he actually has his own retainers, right? Servants who carry his stuff while he's on campaign. So, is al-Afshin a slave, or is he a high-status mercenary commander, or is he some sort of weird hybrid? Uh, we don't really have the cultural context today to fully understand what's going on there. And I should also mention that this is not unique to the Abbasid Empire in this time period, the Byzantine Empire is also doing it. And it's also done very similarly in terms of social carrots and sticks. Uh, soldier slaves in the Byzantine Empire gain the same social status as citizen soldiers, and when they retire, they retain that status, so it's a way for minorities who might not otherwise be able to gain citizenship to get some skin in the game and actually become full citizens of the empire. Now, regardless of any of that, this new caliph al-Mutasim has a small elite force, right? He has roughly 3,000 to 6,000 troops. This is what he's got to begin ruling the caliphate. But they're a powerful tool, right? These aren't just any mercenaries and slave soldiers. These are Turkic peoples. These are primarily cavalry archers from the steppes of Central Asia. Right? Most of the slave markets where they're brought in are in the city of Samarkand, way out along the Silk Road, at the eastern frontier of the Caliphate. And this infusion of elite foreign troops doesn't just change the way the army functions, it also changes the way society functions. Right, here is what historian Hugh Kennedy says about the transformation of the Abbasid army. Quote, The real change was not that the community was ruled by slaves, but rather that the army became the preserve of different minority groups. Turks, Armenians, Berbers, recruited from the fringes of the empire, rather than from the towns and cities of Iraq and Syria, or the Bedouin tribes of the Arabian desert. This meant that the military caste became separate from the rest of society. 
Generals did not have brothers who were merchants or teachers in the mosque, and Ashinas, that's a foreign soldier who ended up becoming a governor, um, Ashinas, for example, though he ruled over half the caliphate, never learned to speak Arabic properly. This divorce of the military elite from the rest of society by origin, language, and custom was to be a distinctive feature of many Islamic societies. Like the mounted knights of Western Europe, they were few in number, but very expensive to maintain and support, and providing for them placed a massive strain on state resources. Unquote. So, the end of this civil war and the rise of al-Mutasim is the beginning of a new era in the Abbasid Caliphate. Now, if you had to choose a leader to go into this era, al-Mutasim is not a terrible choice, right? He's got this hardcore of slaves and mercenaries, uh, he's a distinguished general, as a matter of fact, uh, within four years of becoming caliph. Uh, in the year 837, al-Mutasim would successfully finish putting down that Azerbaijani rebellion that had plagued the entirety of his brother's reign. And al-Mutasim did not limit himself to just being a military leader. Uh, he instituted some important financial reforms, right? We talked last episode about um, the standardization of taxation under earlier caliphs and the creation of a bureaucracy to manage that. Well, now al-Mutasim was getting rid of some of the other vestiges of the earlier Umayyad caliphate. Uh, for instance, the Arab elites in the provinces had still been receiving massive stipends from the state treasury. Uh, those were cut off. Provincial taxes were centralized, so there was no more of this uh, problem of different regions keeping their own money. Now, this did lead to resentment in some areas. Uh, notably in Egypt, there were riots over this because Egypt had always been uh, sort of semi-independent. Now, interestingly, what we don't see is any kind of actual rebellion in response to all of this. Uh, could be just that in the wake of such a long and destructive civil war, nobody was really in the mood for rebellion. And this is very fortunate for al-Mutasim. You see, while he's been dealing with the one rebellion he did have to deal with, right, this Azerbaijani uh, rebellion of non-Muslims that he was putting down, the Byzantines have been active. See, they're having some internal struggles of their own. At this point in Christianity, particularly in the East, there is a dispute between two different factions called the Iconoclasts and the Iconophiles. What these factions are arguing over is whether or not it's appropriate to use uh, images uh, uh, during spiritual practices. Right? So the Iconophiles 
have a strong tradition of sacred imagery, right? Think like pictures of Jesus Christ or the saints or something like that. And this is central to the way they practice Christianity. On the other hand, the iconoclasts believe that uh, these images are idolatrous, right? It's some sort of false worship. And the new emperor, a man named Theophilus, is a young man who took over in 829. And he is of the iconoclast faction. Now, Theophilus wasn't the first iconoclast emperor. There had been a run of them before him, including his own father. However, most of them had been iconoclasts on the philosophical or political level, not on a deep, deep level. And Theophilus brought passion to his iconoclastic policies. What he does is works to suppress iconophiles throughout the country, censoring their writings. He exiles several of the more outspoken ones. And you got to remember that in these times, people put a lot more stock in what you might call divine favor. Right? If the king or the emperor, if the caliph... Uh, whoever it is, if they're doing all the right things that they're supposed to be doing, then God will favor them and the country or the empire will prosper. On the other hand, if the king or the emperor, whoever is not doing all the right things, then God will frown upon them and the country will suffer. So in the year 833, right, remember when we started out, Al-Mamun died, uh, he had been on a campaign trying to conquer Constantinople. This is sort of an obsession for a lot of these uh, caliphs. And as it turns out, his death on campaign is seen by the Byzantine people as a sign of divine favor for Theophilus, right? His whole iconoclast program must be the will of God, because look how God is favoring the empire all of a sudden. Their enemy, Al-Malmud, is dead. Um, and uh, Theophilus decides he's going to go ahead and run with this. So while Al-Mutasim is making war against the uh, Azerbaijani rebels, right, putting them down once and for all, Theophilus pushes through the Taurus-Anti-Taurus mountain range, right? That's that band of mountains across the Anatolian Peninsula that is a strategic barrier between it and the Middle East and the rest of Asia, right? Theophilus moves through with an army of 100,000 men, and in the year 837, he sacks several... Abbasid cities. He also takes tribute from several of these Muslim cities. And after this massive raid in force, uh, he returns to Constantinople 
and he celebrates what's known as a triumph. Now, fans of Roman history will already know what this is, right? It's basically a big parade to celebrate his military victory. This is a Roman tradition that goes back to the B.C. era, and it looks like, you know, the high point of uh, this new revival of the Byzantine Empire. But Theophilus's celebration is a little bit premature. See, even as he's throwing this triumph, Al-Mutasim has finished with this Azerbaijani rebellion, and refugees start showing up in his court from all these cities that Theophilus has sacked. Right, remember, this is the year 837. News does not travel very quickly, and this is the first Al-Mutasim is hearing about this Byzantine incursion. Now, our records of the Abbasid response come from a 12th century Orthodox bishop uh, named Michael the Syrian. And Michael the Syrian tells us that Al-Mutasim rallies an army of 80,000 men. This is a bit incongruous with what we've heard so far about his forces, right? Again, smaller numbers of more elite troops, but part of it can be explained by the fact that, according to Michael the Syrian, roughly 30,000 out of those 80,000 men are servants. So right there, the actual number of fighting troops uh, goes down to 50,000. Again, is Michael including things like blacksmiths, uh, people who take care of the horses? I mean, you've got a lot more with the army than just fighting men. So that may be what he's talking about. Regardless, the Byzantine army is also now smaller than it was, right? This 100,000-man force that Theophilus had raised, well, now he has to come back near the border, and he has to split that army. He has to split it to defend a river crossing, right? There are two places where the Abbasids might be crossing the river, and he's not sure where they're going to attack. So uh, he leaves half his force under one of his commanders uh, at one of the river crossings and then goes off to the other river crossing, and it turns out that uh, Theophilus is leading the uh, defense of the river crossing where the Abbasids ultimately attack. And his army is defeated in the field. Uh, Theophilus himself is almost killed, right? Uh, as is often the case in this era. Exact details of the battle are a bit fuzzy, but uh, we can say almost for certain that Theophilus only got out of there alive because his personal guards uh, rallied around him and fought their way to safety. So Theophilus is beaten, but he hasn't lost the war, right? He's still got an army in the field, uh, but he has to recuperate. And uh, In August 838, while he's regrouping his armies, the Abbasids 
launch their next stroke, right? They're not going to wait for the Byzantines to recover. Al-Mutasim wants to finish this now while Theophilus's army is still in chaos. Uh, so he attacks the city of Armorium, which is at the time a major city in Anatolia. Now, this is a walled city. It is very well defended, but some traitors, according to Michael the Syrian, reveal a weak spot in the walls, right? Uh, apparently, uh, there had been some damage to the walls just from decay over the years, and before the battle, uh, the local leaders sort of just made a cosmetic repair at this one point to make it look more imposing. And that is where all of the Abbasid siege engines start attacking. Now, the defenders try to shore up this spot in the walls with wood, uh, but it only takes uh, a couple of days for the siege engines to punch an actual hole in the wall. Uh, and at that point, they then have to defend this gap with uh, their bodies. Now, the defenders during this time aren't just sitting there uh, under siege. They're also being active, right? They send out two emissaries, uh, separately to beg Theophilus to hurry up and get down there with his army. But Al-Mutasim's soldiers capture both of these emissaries, bring them before him, and uh, he bribes both of them successfully into converting to Islam. And uh, they are both paraded around the city, basically to show the defenders, ha-ha, your uh, emissaries switched sides, and the defenders hold on for two weeks. But ultimately, they know they're going to have to surrender at this point. And uh, the Byzantine commander of the actual uh, unit that is holding the wall, holding the line there, uh, he goes on his own mission to Al-Mutasim to try and negotiate a peace settlement. And it's not clear... 100% that he betrays the city of Armorium, but he does order his soldiers to stand down while he's gone negotiating. And, of course, as soon as the soldiers defending this gap in the wall stand down, the Abbasids see this, exploit the situation, and break into the city. And at that point, all hell breaks loose. Depending on which sources you believe, somewhere between 30 and 70,000 people are massacred. Tens of thousands more are sold into slavery. That is the entire population of the city. And the city itself is burned to the ground. To this day... Armorium remains a ruin with nothing more than a few old decaying sections of wall. At this point, Theophilus offers to pay a tribute for peace, but Al-Mutasim is absolutely enraged and demands an even larger tribute, which Theophilus can't pay. 
And Theophilus appeals for help to other Christian leaders, right? He sends a letter to the Frankish king, Louis the Pious, asking for military assistance. He even goes so far as to send an emissary to the Emirate of Cordoba. That is, uh, right, the Umayyad rump state in uh, northern Spain, uh, trying to see if maybe they can attack the Abbasids and take some of the pressure off him. Uh, Neither the French nor the Cordobans were particularly interested in helping out the Byzantines at this point. But it seems that while al-Mutasim was unwilling to make peace, his appetite for campaigning had been sated, right? He seems to have been content with his gains, at least for the time being in 838. And while sporadic fighting would continue for the next three years, nothing significant came of it. And ultimately, in the year 841, a truce is finally signed between the Byzantines and the Abbasids. And this piece would be emblematic of the next century of Abbasid-Byzantine relations. Somebody attacks somebody, a city is sacked, a little bit of territory is exchanged one way or the other, somebody pays a tribute. One example of this would be in 841, right after the truce had been signed, uh, al-Mutasim is preparing an invasion fleet to... uh, once again renew the war, and his fleet sinks, and at the same time he falls ill and dies. This bloodshed along the Byzantine-Abbasid border would continue. In 853, the Byzantines would retaliate by sacking the city of Diomeda in Egypt, and it goes on and on and on. Al-Mutasim, like his predecessor, does have a plan for the succession. When he dies, the caliphate passes to his son. But his son does not actually seem to exercise any power, right? The bureaucracy is really what's in control. Now, part of the reason that the bureaucracy was so powerful was that al-Mutasim had moved his capital from Baghdad to a nearby planned city that he was building called Samara. Now, his goal here was to get his administration out from under the thumb of the old bureaucracy, right? These people who had been in power uh, in large part during that civil war. And what he ends up doing is building this local court in Samara of people who were loyal to him. But when he dies, uh, that loyalty does not seem to transfer to his son. But this son only lives a few years. He dies in 847, and a younger son of al-Mutasim's takes over as caliph. 
Now, this younger son is a man named Al-Mutawakil, and I must apologize again to anybody who actually speaks Arabic. I am so sorry for undoubtedly butchering at least two-thirds of these names, but Al-Mutawakil is the new caliph, and he's a relatively young man. He's only 26 years old. He wants to run the caliphate himself. Right? He is not going to sit in the background and let the bureaucracy run everything. He's going to be a more hands-on leader. And he starts with a purge. Right? Perhaps the most powerful bureaucrat at this time is the vizier, the chief advisor to the caliph, a man named Muhammad ibn al-Zayat. Now, al-Zayat has a little bit of a history with al-Mutawakil, this new young caliph. See, when al-Mutawakil was much younger, a teenager, he had been trying to resolve a family dispute, and he had come to Al-Zayat for help. Al-Zayat had made Al-Mutawakil wait for an inordinate amount of time, rudely, and then expressed concern to Al-Mutawakil's father, right, Al-Mutasim, that Al-Mutawakil was a little bit effeminate, which was not an accepted thing back then. And in response, Al-Mutasim had cut al-Mutawakil's hair in front of the entire court, which in this culture was a major insult, and al-Mutawakil blamed all of this on al-Zayat. So he decides to begin his purge with his own vizier. Now, from what we can say for sure in the historical record, al-Zayat was executed. How exactly that execution took place is a matter of speculation. One of the more colorful stories is that Al-Zayat had devised a torture device uh, that's basically an Iron Maiden, right? It's a, a box with spikes on the inside, and when someone is put into the box and the box is closed, they're then punctured by the spikes, and uh, it's designed so that they bleed out rather painfully and slowly. Um, according to this legend, uh, Al-Mutawakil has Al-Zayat executed in the Iron Maiden torture device that he himself had devised. Now, whether or not this is accurate is a matter of speculation, but it is a colorful bit of detail here, and it shows you a little bit about who this Al-Mutawakil guy is, right? You really, really do not want to cross him. And Al-Mutawaki would be the last of the great Abbasid caliphs. There would be several caliphs after him, but he would be the last that was truly powerful and influential. One thing he did was he tried to ensure that the 
Abbasids themselves would rule. Right. In other words, that the situation after his death would not revert to uh, this uh, Turkish elite running the caliphate once more. Uh, so to this end, he doesn't just put his sons in military positions, right? Uh, he has three sons, and he puts them in administrative positions throughout the caliphate. Right? He wants them to understand how the inner workings of the Abbasid bureaucracy work. Right? He wants them to be able to out-politic the bureaucrats after he's gone. Uh, and he also lays out a plan for the succession. So there is a defined order as to which one of these three sons will succeed in turn. Uh, Al-Mutawakil abandons this new city of Samara, right? This city that Al-Mutasim had built in the desert to be his new capital. Well, Al-Mutawakil abandons it because of this bureaucracy issue. Uh, and he plans on relocating the capital to Damascus, uh, where it was during most of the Umayyad Caliphate. But the Turkish uh, elites and the army really don't like that. So as a compromise, Al-Mutawakil founds yet another capital city near Samara. Uh, and this is the bind that Al-Mutawakil finds himself in. He wants to be free of Turkish influence, but he can't, right? He needs them to put down rebellions. He needs them uh, for this ongoing simmering conflict against the Byzantine Empire. Right? What's he going to do if he actually succeeds in getting rid of his military elite? Uh, one other thing he does during his reign is he tries to reunify Islam, right? We've been seeing, you know, ever since the death of the prophet Muhammad, more or less, this split starting to grow between the Shia and the Sunni Muslims, right? The Shia Muslims who believe that an heir of the prophet Muhammad, right, a Imam should rule, and the Sunnis believing in the caliphate model of Islamic society. Uh, well, the Sunnis up to this point have always been dominant, and al-Mutawakil wants to make sure it stays this way. One thing he does, he, he renews the public condemnations of Ali, right, Muhammad's son. If you recall from our episode on Muhammad, right, almost as soon as Ali had died, the caliphs had started condemning him, right? Ali, after all, being the first imam in the Shia tradition, it was pretty important to condemn that man. Well, al-Mutawakil renews that practice, right, at the beginning of every public worship service, 
there is a condemnation of Ali. And he even goes so far as destroying the tomb of Ali, which had been a, a shrine, a place of pilgrimage for Shias. Well, that was gone. And he didn't just tighten restrictions on Shia Muslims. He also tightened restrictions on Christians and Jews. Now, throughout the entirety of this story, Christians and Jews have been second-class citizens in Islamic societies, but in many times and places there has been a large degree of toleration and uh, getting along. Uh, the caliphate under al-Mudawakil was not one of those times. Here is what the 10th century Persian historian Al-Tabari has to say about al-Mutawakil's policies. Quote, In that year, the year 850, al-Mutawakil ordered that the Christians and all the rest of the Aldima be made to wear honey-colored hoods and the Zunar belts. They were to ride on saddles with wooden stirrups, and two balls were to be attached to the rear of their saddles. He required them to attach two buttons to their cap, and it was to be of a different color from the cap worn by Muslims. He further required them to affix two patches on the exterior of their slaves' garments. The color of these patches had to be different from that of the garment. One of the patches was to be worn in the front of the breast and the other on the back. Each of the patches should measure four fingers in diameter. They too were to be honey-colored. Whosoever of them wears a turban, its color was likewise to be honey-colored. If any of their women went out veiled, they had to be enveloped in a honey-colored veil. He further commanded that their slaves be made to wear the zunar, which is a non-Muslim belt, by the way, and be forbidden to wear the mintaga, which is an Arab military belt worn by Muslims. He gave orders that any of their houses of worship built after the advent of Islam were to be destroyed, and that one-tenth of their homes be confiscated. If the place was spacious enough, it was to be converted into a mosque. If not, it was to be made an open space. He commanded that wooden images of devils be nailed to the doors of their homes to distinguish them from the homes of Muslims. He forbade them being employed in the government offices or in any official business whereby they might have authority over Muslims. He prohibited their children from studying in Muslim schools, nor was any Muslim permitted to teach them. He forbade them to display crosses on their Palm Sundays, and he prohibited any Jewish chanting in the streets. He gave orders that their graves would be made level with the ground so as not to resemble the graves of Muslims and he wrote to all his governors regarding this. And if that strikes you as a little bit harsh, let's not forget that there are still Zoroastrians trying to survive in this empire, and Al-Mudawakil's treatment of them is worse. In addition to the ongoing oppression, right, pogroms, which have been going on already for some time, he cuts down a tree called the Cypress of Kashmar. This is an ancient tree that had supposedly been planted by the prophet Zoroaster himself, the founder of the Zoroastrian faith. 
Well, Al-Mutawakil cuts this sacred tree down and uses it to build beams for his new palace. And it seems that as Al-Mutawakil grew older, he was not content with oppressing religious minorities. He also decided he was going to purge the entire Turkic leadership of the military. Now, he might have been able to get away with this, but at the same time, in the year 861 now, Al-Mutawakil is also planning on tinkering with the succession, right? His eldest son, Al-Muntasir, is supposed to be the heir. But uh, recently, when Al-Muntasir was supposed to lead a prayer service for Ramadan, Al-Mutawakil had him replaced at the last minute by one of his younger sons. Uh, So the... Turkish leaders who have gotten wind that Al-Mutawakil is trying to have them purged um, contact Al-Muntasir and they make a deal with him, right? If he helps them get Al-Mutawakil, then they will back him to be the next caliph. So Al-Muntasir, Al-Mutawakil's oldest son, agrees to help the Turks, uh, murder him. On the night before this purge of the Turkish leadership is supposed to go into effect, they strike. Al-Mutawakil is enjoying a private dinner with his vizier when some Turkish soldiers suddenly break into the chamber and kill both of them. Supposedly, uh, his vizier is killed defending him. And unfortunately, the public messaging around this did not go as well as Al-Muntasir would have liked. Uh, First, the story is that the vizier had murdered the caliph and was executed. Uh, Then the story changes. It becomes, uh, well, Al-Mutawakil choked on his soup. Uh, It pretty quickly becomes apparent what had actually happened. But nonetheless, Al-Muntasir is proclaimed caliph. Unfortunately for him, he did not get to enjoy this very long. Within six months, he himself is killed by Turkish leaders because he is a little too independent for their liking. Besides which, can you really trust somebody who would betray and murder their own dad? Regardless... The deaths of the caliphs Al-Mutawakil and Al-Muntasir kick off 19 years of anarchy in the Abbasid Caliphate. And when I say anarchy, I'm not exaggerating much. Historians actually call this period of time the Anarchy at Samarra. There are a series of puppet caliphs, for the most part, Uh, with constant civil war between various Turkic factions among this new elite, right? So you've got an Abbasid civil war, but these Turkic former mercenaries and slave soldiers who are now the military elite are actually the ones fighting each other, and it is uh, 
Turkic vendettas that are being played out with this fighting. It it really has nothing to do um, with the bulk of the Muslim population. That said, this Turkic infighting made it impossible for the army to do its job. And as we have seen again and again in the Umayyad and Abbasid caliphates, there were some revolts uh, in the year 861, right? The very year that al-Mudawaki is betrayed and killed by his son, there is a revolt in Persia. Uh, in the uh, area of what would today be uh, eastern Iran, western Afghanistan, that part of the map. Uh, and it's actually led by a local leader who is a former coppersmith, a man named Yaqub ibn al-Layth al-Safar. Um, al-Safar had worked his way up through the tribal hierarchy of his area, and understand that this region is along the eastern frontier of the Abbasid Caliphate, right? It is a home for many exiles, um, and it's been a hotbed of rebellion in the past. If you remember last episode when we talked about uh, the Karaji uh, movement, well, this is where those people came from. Uh, and this former coppersmith, uh, al-Safar, ends up founding uh, the Safarid dynasty, a new uh, independent Persian caliphate. And while his dynasty would only last a few generations, this independent Persian Islamic kingdom uh, would persist until uh, the 10th century. You know, it, uh, it, it stuck around for a good hundred years. Um, now, even without this territory that Al-Safar carved out, the Abbasid Caliphate is still very large and very powerful. And in the year 680, a new caliph named Al-Mutamid rises to the position. Now, Al-Mutamid is a little bit different than his predecessors, these puppet caliphs, because the puppet caliphs were puppets of one or another Turkic faction, right? Remember, the Turks were having a civil war against each other within this uh, structure of the caliphate, right? Uh, Al-Mutamid was not a puppet of any faction. After 19 years of civil war, uh, many vendettas had been settled, and in the cases where they hadn't, the Turkish leaders and uh, soldiers are tired of this civil war, at least tired enough to support backing a compromise caliph, and that's who al-Mutamid is. He is the compromise choice that is acceptable enough to all the various Turkish factions. Now, the first part of his reign is marked by a slave revolt. 
this revolt is called the Zanj Rebellion. And it is named after the Zanj people. The Zanj were a people from East Africa, uh, a Bantu-speaking people, and they had been imported to the Middle East as slaves. These people were used in agricultural labor, which was unusual uh, in the Abbasid Caliphate, right? You had uh, soldier slaves and you had uh, chattel slaves used in uh, you know, mining and uh, household work and, and those sorts of things, but most farming was done by free peasants. Now, the reason that slaves were being used in this particular case was that the work they were doing was very unpleasant. There was a lot of marshland in Iraq, and under Islamic law, if a person made land fit for agriculture, they then owned the land. So what a lot of these uh, Muslims in the area were doing, uh, people who were landowners lucky enough to you know, have, have somewhere to uh, set up a base of operations along these marshes. They'd import these slaves and drain and reclaim the marshland. Now, there's a lot of risk of disease doing that, uh, right? You have to worry about predators. It is certainly not pleasant work, and, and hence you're getting this uh, slave labor situation going on. And in the year 869, right, this is going back, this is 11 years before al-Mutamid became caliph, but uh, in the year 869, there is a charismatic Islamic scholar named Ali ibn Muhammad. Uh, first, he claims that he is a prophet. Uh, later on, he kind of rolls that back a little bit bit and says that he's just a descendant of Muhammad, but regardless, he is gathering followers in this area of Iraq, and he gains the attention of these Zanj slaves, almost all of whom see him, at the very least, as a spiritual leader, and... Ali ibn Muhammad leads them in a revolt against the Abbasid Caliphate. And interestingly enough, these Zanj slaves are joined by a number of other slaves, right? Household slaves, mining slaves, people like that, and by a number of free uh, people who are minorities. And as you can imagine, the Zanj rebels in particular, right, the, the former slaves, are very angry and emotional, right? Many of them are first-generation slaves, right? They themselves were kidnapped from their homes and taken up here to Iraq to do backbreaking labor. And they take no prisoners. When Zanj rebels take over a plantation, they execute 
everybody. And they begin to rage a guerrilla war in these swamps. They use boats to move around quickly where it is difficult for local Abbasid forces to get at them. And because at this time, right, in 869, the uh, Abbasid Caliphate is in a state of civil war, local forces are all that's going to be able to respond. So the Zanj are successful for many years, and when al-Mutamid, right, this compromised caliph, uh, takes over in the year 680, his first priority is putting down this Zanj rebellion. Uh, the Abbasid army does respond in force at this time, and they send 50,000 men to these marshes. And what they do is just very methodically move through the swamp, destroying boats as they go to limit uh, the rebels' mobility, and they eventually push them back into a city called Muktara. And there's a siege. And in the year 883, the city finally falls, and as you might expect, the survivors are all put to the sword. Uh, not one of the Zanj rebels lives to tell the tale. And while al-Mutamid had succeeded in his goal of putting down the rebellion, in many ways, the damage to the Abbasid Caliphate was already done. Uh, here is what Hugh Kennedy has to say on the subject. Quote, Slave farming and large-scale reclamation of land were never begun again, and it seems unlikely that the city of Basra ever fully recovered. Trade routes had been disrupted for too long. Merchants had found other ways of communicating with the East, via Saraf in southern Iran, for example, and Basra and southern Iraq in general entered a long period of decline. Once again... The social antagonisms in the area had led to large-scale popular movements which threatened the order and prosperity of society. Unquote. Right, what Kennedy is referring to there, in part, is that this area of Iraq had been the heartland of the Abbasid Caliphate, right? The, the capital is in Baghdad. That's not terribly far from Basra. And this kind of rebellion that close to home undermined people's confidence in the Caliphate. Right? And it wasn't just this Zanj rebellion. It was the loss of... Eastern Persia and Afghanistan. It was also the loss of Egypt. That is yet another disaster that happened during the anarchy at Samara that we haven't talked about yet. So, for the final time, let's go back in time a few years to the anarchy at Samara, which 
I hope it is beginning to come clear why it's called that. Uh, in the year 868, the governor of Egypt, who was one of these Turkic slave soldiers, uh, took advantage of the ongoing civil strife to declare independence altogether. This governor's name was Ahmad ibn Tulun, and over the next several years, Tulun would conquer as far as Syria. Now, if you recall, in the last episode, during the Abbasid Revolution, the caliphate had lost much of North Africa. Well, now, Tulun had carved out all of this western portion of the caliphate. Right? Everything from Egypt west was now gone. Now, Tulun's dynasty, the Tulunid dynasty, would only last until 905, when the Abbasids would ultimately reconquer it. However, this brief period of independence was very important for Egypt for a couple of reasons. Right, for one thing, this is the first time in nearly a thousand years that Egypt is truly independent. Think of that. Egypt is one of, if not the oldest civilizations that we know about. The first battle in history, the Battle of Megiddo, was an Egyptian battle. And yet, since the days of the pharaohs, right, really since the last of the Ptolemaic dynasty, Egypt had been under the thumb of one empire or another, this proud, ancient civilization. And for a brief period, they got their independence back. Another important part of this brief period of the Tulunid dynasty is that it set a precedent. A Turkic slave soldier became the founder of this dynasty. We will eventually see a similar situation a few hundred years down the road with the uh, Mamluk leaders of Egypt, right? Mamluk, if you remember, uh, being a word for these slave soldiers, well, they would have a whole dynasty uh, later on in history. And the Tulunid dynasty was you know, a precedent for that. Now, ultimately, the Abbasid uh, Caliphate would not hold on to Egypt for very long. Uh, it would soon fall into the control of yet another splinter group called the Fatimid dynasty. And this is why, when we were talking earlier, right, we talked about how um, al-Mutawakil was the last of the great Abbasid caliphs, right? Well, that didn't mean he was the last one to be in control. Al-Mutamid is in command, but he has a hard time stopping the bleeding. And 
This would become a pattern with subsequent caliphs. Uh, you will see the rest of the Abbasid caliphs spending most of their time on campaign, trying to put down one uh, splinter group or another, and the caliphate the whole time is slowly losing territory. This becomes a problem that snowballs because uh, with the loss of territory, they no longer have tax revenue to pay the army. Uh, the Abbasid tax system at this point was highly dependent on land taxes. And when you lose a bunch of land or when war causes land to be unproductive, you're not getting that tax income. And it's not a source of income that you can really scale up or down as needed. Uh, Kennedy talks about, you know, the fact that you can't have deficit spending with this kind of tax system, for instance, because you can't necessarily rely on your future income and it becomes a problem. So what these later caliphs end up doing uh, over the next 70 years is they start paying their troops with land, right? They start uh, doing what the Romans did with many of the barbarian peoples along their borders uh, and basically giving them land for service in the army. Uh, and in this way, the caliphs and the uh, Turkic soldiers, despite their differences, they were kind of in an uneasy alliance, right? The caliphs needed the soldiers to maintain power, and the soldiers needed the caliphs to have legitimacy in society and to eventually become landowners. And the bureaucracy... Uh, remained a thing too, right? These viziers, uh, advisors, often held significant sway over the caliphs in this period. Uh, sometimes uh, these caliphs were basically puppets. Other times they were more forceful. And this whole period over roughly the next 70 years is just a confusing overlap of civil wars and revivals and territory being lost and gained. And it's really not worth getting into a blow-by-blow -blow recounting of that. We could be here all day. But what I do want to talk about is the end of the Abbasid Caliphate, at least for now, as a meaningful political force. In the year 935, a military governor in Mesopotamia by the name of Ibn Raik refuses to pay his district's taxes. Now, his pretext is that he really needs the money close to home uh, for various projects, but Nonetheless, he is refusing to forward uh, the caliph's share of the taxes to the central government. Now, the vizier at this time, a man named Ibn Mukla, convinces the caliph to subdue Ibn Raik. Hey, this guy's refusing to pay taxes. You should take an army out and uh, put him down. 
But the plan backfires. Uh, the vizier, Ibn Mukla, ends up being arrested by Ibn Raik, and a year later, in 936, with no other choice, the caliph asks Ibn Raik to take over administration of the caliphate, both in military and financial affairs. Ibn Raik declares himself Amir al-Umara, which means commander of commanders. Right, if you're familiar with the term emir or emirate, right, that's commander, right? So he's not the caliph. There's still a caliph, but the emir is in charge of both foreign and domestic policy. Well, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that if someone is in charge of both foreign and domestic policy, they are really in charge of the country, and the caliph is just sort of a figurehead. And that is going to be the case from now on. The emirs will run the caliphate, and the caliph will be a figurehead. And as we've seen with several changes in leadership, uh, Ibn Raik decides that he is going to purge both the military and civilian leadership. Here is what Hugh Kennedy says about his treatment of Ibn Mukla, right, this vizier. Quote, On the orders of the vengeful Amir Alumara, his tongue was torn out, and his hand, the hand which had produced the most beautiful calligraphy of the age, cut off like a thief's. He died of dysentery, alone in a squalid dungeon, denied even a drink of water. From then on, it was the Amir Alumara's secretary who conducted such administration as was needed. The old diwans, those are government bureaucrats, with their specialized methods and procedures were abandoned and only the most basic functions of government remained. Unquote. Right, we've seen previous caliphs purge the leadership and replace it with their own people. But what Kennedy is telling us is that much of the bureaucracy was just eliminated. And Ibn Raik tried to do a similar thing by purging the army. Uh, the problem he had was that the army is armed and uh, civil war breaks out almost immediately. And already there is a rival claimant to the position of Amir, a man named Bajkam. And Bajkam is marching an army towards Baghdad, and Ibn Raik wants to deny him supplies. So what Raik does is he cuts off uh, a canal... It's called the Narawan Canal, uh, and it's the canal that feeds the bulk of the farmland around Baghdad. Right? Remember we talked in the last episode about previous caliphs putting all kinds of resources into developing farmland in the desert? 
well, by destroying this canal, Ibn Raik inflicts a crippling blow on the caliphate itself. And Bajkum ultimately defeats him, becomes Amir. He ends up being overthrown shortly there afterwards, and the territory of the caliphate is now restricted to Mesopotamia, and the caliph himself is impotent. And that's basically how the Abbasid caliphate is going to be for a few centuries. Now, interestingly enough, this remaining Abbasid caliphate made a number of contributions to science. As Baghdad slowly recovers over the years, major discoveries will be made in the areas of medicine, of astronomy, and uh, even in optics, uh, some of the first most basic uh, lens-making techniques were developed in the uh, later Abbasid Caliphate. But in terms of being a major player on the global stage, the Abbasids were just about done. Uh, they would have a resurgence briefly in the 1100s, fighting against the Seljuk Turks, but for the most part, uh, they would never again be a world power. And this is not at all uncommon. Empires fall all the time in history. Right? And the Abbasids had had a pretty good run. Remember, they were basically a continuation of the Umayyad Caliphate with a change in leadership and culture, but still the same general Muslim society. And they'd had a run of, you know, close to 300 years, if you count that whole continuous caliphate as one general society. And what's interesting is that the successor states, right, the Buyids, the Fatimids, the Safarids, and so on, they mirror the countries and the peoples that were there before Muslim conquest, right? The Egyptians are still Egyptian. They may have been Islamicized, but they're still Egyptian. The Iraqis may have been Islamicized, and they may speak Arabic now, but they're still Iraqis and the same for the Persian successor states, right? One interesting thing about these successor states for about the next hundred years is that most of them were Shia Muslim states. This had not been the case for the first 300 years of Islamic history where Sunni Islam dominated. And when we say that Sunni Islam or Shia Islam dominated, understand, right, I'm talking about the leadership, right, who's running the country. Obviously, 
Throughout this whole period, there were Sunni and Shia Muslims in the Abbasid Caliphate and later on in the successor states. It's a matter of who's in charge, and that would be the Shia for roughly the next hundred years. Ironically, it would be the Seljuk Turks who helped to reestablish Sunni dominance, right? first by invading much of the Muslim world and then by provoking a response by the Abbasids. Right? That's a ways down the road, though. Right? That's in the 1000s, right before the First Crusade is kicked off. And that's a different story. But these Abbasid successor states nonetheless line up with ancient countries and ancient cultures, as well as modern nations and peoples who we know today. But all of those nations, peoples, and cultures share a common memory of a time when the entire Islamic world was united under a single banner, the banner of the caliphs. And that's why it's relevant. Just a reminder, if you want to get in touch with me, you can always reach the show at at Dan Toller Podcast on Twitter. That's D-A-N-T-O-L-E-R Podcast on Twitter. And you can also find me at Dan Toller, that's T-O-L-E-R, on Facebook. In addition to that, if you want to send an email to the show, whether to give some input or request a different topic... Go ahead and shoot me a line at dantollerpodcast at gmail.com. Once again, that's dan, T-O-L-E-R, podcast at gmail.com. If you just stumbled across this episode and you'd like to find more episodes, they're available on just about every podcast service. You can find relevant history on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Deezer, iHeartRadio, Podbean, and several others. Just search for Relevant History. That's R-E-L-E-V-A-N-T, History. And if you happen to prefer YouTube, the show is on there well. Just don't expect any fancy videos. Finally, if you'd like to keep up with my blog, which may or may not ever be updated, you can find the show at dantollerpodcast.com. That's dan, T-O-L-E-R, podcast.com. Thanks.